And so, our first story of the evening will be Black Cod by Gregory Jackson, read by Gloria Sanders. Gregory has studied at City Lit under Zoe Fairbairns and John Peverbridge. His writing has appeared in The Maze, The Independent and the Bridport Prize Anthology. He lives in London. Gloria's work includes audiobook narration for the RNIB and frequent collaborations with Cabinets of Curiosity. She has performed her devised one-woman show with hide-and-seek theatre, The Clock at the Brighton Fringe, The Pleasance, Islington and the Art Scene Festival in Ghent. She is fluent in Spanish. Gloria. Black Cod by Gregory Jackson. Black Cod was the name of the Japanese restaurant opposite our offices in Canary Wharf. It's closed now. But in the boom years, it was where we took clients visiting from Tokyo if we wanted more exciting Japanese cuisine than sashimi or tempura. Don't get me wrong, it wasn't quite El Bully or the Fat Duck or any of the other really way-out Michelin-starred places. But then most of the clients we entertained were portfolio managers for the big Japanese semiconductor and automotive conglomerates. They had conservative palettes. They associated blowtorches and chemicals with the factory floor, not lunch. It is always a balancing act, choosing the right place to entertain a client. On the one hand, you want to show them the love, that they're the bee's knees, your ichiban, your number one. On the other, you want them to be able to eat something off the menu. The menu at Black Cod had plenty of experimentation, which would let the clients know you were taking them somewhere special. But it also offered the staples. Personally, I loved the more tongue-in-cheek a la carte items. Things like black pudding tempura, (laughs) the wasabi madeleines, or the sea urchin ice cream. (laughs) But... The clients weren't going to let you fuck around with their lunch any more than they would let you slip exotic derivatives into their investment portfolios. Black Cod was about as far as we could push it. Most of the time, dealing with clients based in Tokyo was straightforward. It was all done by email or over the phone. Daryl Ferris, my boss, the head of equity sales, took the view that for all the complexity of some of the products we were broking, we might as well be working in a butcher shop. It's simple, he used to say during the induction course for new members of the team. Clients call me. They say to me, Mr. Darrell, which sausages are good today? I say, Mr. Mikamoto, let me have a look what I've got in the sausage department. I have a look and I sell them the good sausages. They put the good sausages in their portfolio and then they can fuck off and play golf for the rest of the day. They're happy, we're happy, and everybody makes a lot of money. Daryl had started his working life as a porter down the road in the meat market at Smithfield and prided himself on the fact that he still hadn't scrubbed all the blood out from under his nails. It was only when things went wrong 
when we advised clients on a product and they lost money, that it became more complicated. And if that happened with a Japanese client, well, they always wanted to have the discussion face to face. That was the other reason why Black Cod was such a good venue. It was high up, which nearly always gave difficult conversations a crucial sense of perspective. The long, curving windows encircled the restaurant like seaweed around a sushi roll. You might go into lunch expecting a rough ride, but a few bottles of sake and a good meal later, once everyone had clinked glasses and said campai to the bird's eye view of the Thames snaking away towards Tower Bridge, and you'd emerge back on track. The client would fly back to Natitas, happy as a fat fucking Buddha, and you'd try your best not to repeat the mistake. The last time we went to Black Cod was August 2008, less than a month before Lehman Brothers collapsed. Our client, Mr. Noguchi, was a portfolio manager for a major trading house. He'd become concerned about the performance of some of the US residential mortgage-backed securities we've broken. Daryl thought they were good sausages. We all did. You only had to look at the stats. Plus, you have to remember what the climate was like back then. The Japanese were getting next to nothing on their domestic investments, so they'd all become tempted by what was on offer overseas. Even the riskier, lower-grade sausages. Junk bonds, credit default swaps, and, of course, the collateralized debt obligations linked to U.S. housing loans. Anything that was offering higher returns. They swallowed it all. Where do you want to do the meeting? I asked Daryl. Black Cod, he said. You, me, Mr. Noguchi, and Kevlar's son. Around the middle of that summer, as I'm sure you'll remember, things had started taking a turn for the worse. All over the US, subprime borrowers were defaulting on their mortgages, posting the keys back through the door, and walking away. And all of a sudden, the income is drying up on a pool of loans underpinning the securities the Japanese have been filling their plates with. And that meant we were getting more calls from Tokyo asking for FaceTime. There were five of us at the meal. Mr. Noguchi, Miss Kawabata, his assistant, myself, Daryl, and Sarah Kiefer, the interpreter, Kevlar Sally, as we called her. Kevlar was the most unassuming person you could imagine doll-like features and immaculately groomed, but completely unflappable, even in a shitstorm. She had what Daryl liked to call KPD eyes, a steely and unwavering thousand-yard stare, eyes that said, I'm bulletproof. I've been at investor conferences where Kevlar has been interpreting. I've heard her deliver brutal put-downs from the floor in the clipped and neutral tones of an air stewardess demonstrating how the oxygen masks work. It's a bit like watching Hello Kitty beat the crap out of her opponent in a cage fight. Plus, Daryl had a thing for her. Mind you, that thing for Kate Aidy, too. <clears throat> Mr. Noguchi has asked that I only translate his replies, she told us both at the start of the meal. His passive understanding of English is excellent, so you may address him directly when you respond to the matters he wishes to discuss. 
Right. Sure thing, Sally. We're in your capables, Daryl said. Noguchi was your typical in-house portfolio manager. Slightly heavy round the waist with thinning hair and a light sheen of moisture across his forehead and nose, as if someone had just given him a glaze with the ombre solaire. It is regrettable, Kevlar began, that the performance of some areas of the portfolio has been so lackluster in recent months. I take very seriously this matter, as I believe it was you, Mr. Ferris, who recommended the products to us. She was translating as Mr. Noguchi was speaking, not even waiting for him to finish his sentences. That's what I find so amazing about interpreting. The way people like Kevlar can just die straight into the head of somebody else so that there is no gap between them. It's like some sort of ventriloquist do. He speaks. She opens her mouth. And hey, presto, it's intelligible. <laughs> My firm has concerns that perhaps you have not been sufficiently thorough in your research before recommending certain products to us. We take this matter very seriously as ultimately it is the assets of our shareholders that we are investing. Welcome to the world, Mr. Noguchi, Daryl replied, looking directly at his client. You aren't the first when you won't be the last to make a loss. We all need to get things in perspective. There is something about the nature of money that means at any given point in time, some will have and others will have not. Rule number one, it comes and it goes. Like the tide. Let's just say we're at low tide right now. Daryl smiled and gestured to the window with a panoramic view of the tents. Noguchi did not look amused. He wiped his mouth with his napkin before speaking. A few seconds later, Kevlar picked up the translation. I wonder, Kevlar said, if you even know what we are eating right now. Daryl flinched. If there was one thing he hated, it was anybody questioning his competence. As it happened, that day we'd ordered the tasting menu just to make things simple. They brought a few amused ooshes to start us off, but by that stage, we were on to the maze. Of course I do, Daryl said. It's black cod. We're eating black cod. Black cod was also the signature dish of the restaurant. The chef did it under the grill. The skin light and crisp and golden, the flesh flaky and imbued with a richness that was hard to describe. It sort of dissolved on your tongue and left you feeling all warm and satisfied. Back then, I used to think of it as the taste of money. Mr. Noguchi said something else to Miss Kawabata under his breath, then spoke aloud so Kevlar could translate. And this black cod. Maybe you would have me believe this is a species native to the seas around the United Kingdom. Daryl looked annoyed. Sure it is, he said. Black cod. It's like the black swan, Mr. Noguchi. For years and years, all we see are white cod. White cod. White cod. White cod. For centuries. That's all we know. We decide there is no other colour of cod. 
fisherman, heap, hauling the same catch, night after night, their nets full of the stuff. Endless albino fish stretching to infinity. They're longing to see some other hue. A hint of brown, maybe. A suggestion of magenta. But no, just more fucking white cod. And then, one dark and stormy night, this particular fisherman, he pulls in his net. And lo and behold, among all the white cod, there's a black fucker flapping on the deck. And after that, everything's different. It's a world with black cod in it. Kevlar waited until Noguchi had responded. But this is nothing more than white fish dipped in a soy marinade. It is the sauce which makes the flesh black, she said. It is not some mythical black fish. Yet you would have me think I am eating something special. Daryl smiled. Caviar emptor, Mr. Noguchi. Buyer beware. You brought the products. You have your own due diligence. And we can't use promissory language. You know the way it works. Did you not think to investigate what was in them? Kevlar conferred with Noguchi. Did you not think to carry out your own checks before recommending them? Look, Mr. Noguchi, I'm just a salesman. I go to the market. If I like the look of something, if the numbers stack up, I'll sell it to you in good faith. Oh, I'm not going to start asking endless questions. He paused, and I could sense he was about to say something stupid. And at the end of the day, it's not my money. There was a silence from the other side of the table. Kevlar waited for Noguchi to respond. <clears throat> In my country, she said, the host is responsible for what he serves to his guest. He would never think to prepare food he did not understand. His guest is his responsibility, just as our money was yours. I sell sausages, said Darrell. If you don't like my sausages, go somewhere else. But what is in your sausages? Kevlar paused. Mr. Noguchi's speech had become more guttural. Sometimes the Japs do that. When the men speak amongst themselves, their speech loses all its politeness and becomes terser, harder. Lips and assholes, she said after a moment. Lips and assholes. That is what you serve me. Do you have no shame? Do you have no respect for other people's money? It might have gone on like that for a few more minutes, Noguchi expressing his indignation and Daryl batting it all away like a politician. But at that moment, something happened. There was a gasp from one of the waitresses in another part of the restaurant. In a few seconds, the whole room seemed to have lost its vague, happy buzz. Everything was harder-edged all of a sudden. People were standing up from their tables and pointing towards the long picture window that ran along the north side, giving that incredible panorama of Canary Wharf. It was towards our office building that they were pointing. I stood up and went over to the window. 
Daryl had his phone in his hand and was angrily texting, probably letting his boss, Tony Edwards, know that Noguchi was pissed off. Noguchi and Miss Kawabata were unsure of what was happening in the restaurant. They looked like foreign tourists at a busy railway station. Kevlar was sitting at the table, implacable as ever, waiting for the next exchange between Noguchi and Daryl. When I looked out of the window, I could see what everyone else in the restaurant was so alarmed by. There was someone on the roof of our building. A man. An office worker in a suit and tie. Nothing out of the ordinary about that, except that he was there on the roof and not in his office. Everywhere beneath him, you could see people in their fish bowls, going about their business, photocopying, or sitting in meeting rooms around oval tables, and here he was, a fish, out of his fishbowl, on the roof. He was close to the edge, too, and for a moment, I tried to find a rational explanation to it all. I thought he might be someone from facilities management, inspecting something, Perhaps the witches that secured the window cleaning cradle or the ventilation units with their circling fans. Daryl, come over. What's going on? He stood beside me. Fuck me. That muppet's going to jump. A few of the people closest to us in the restaurant turned and glared at Daryl when he said that, but there were plenty who were transfixed. They just kept on watching, noses pressed to the glass. It was something none of us had ever witnessed before. We didn't know what it meant. And then the guy did it. He stepped right to the edge of the building, put his toes together like a diver on the high dive board, and jumped. Sometimes, experience is the most wonderful thing. It leaves you feeling enriched and alive, a sort of tingling that travels to the ends of your limbs, and sometimes, like this, it can make you feel as though you've swallowed something really bad. <coughs> Kevlar Sally came over to the window and stood behind us. Other people's money, eh, chaps? She said. I'll email you the invoice for today. And then she, along with Mr. Noguchi and Miss Kawabata, left the restaurant. It took a while for things to work themselves through the system. Daryl didn't make it beyond the first cull, which came in December. Exercises, that's what the HR departments call them. These redundancy tsunamis. As if they're just part of the company's keep fit routine, which I suppose in some sense they are. Black Cod closed in late 2009 when the credit crunch had really started to bite. It didn't have big debts, not like some. Not like Daryl, for instance with his three-bed semi in Putney, the mortgage five times his annual salary, and two kids in private school. No, the size of the restaurant's debt wasn't the issue. It was just that the creditors, the people who the money belonged to, had decided that enough was enough. They called time on the loans. Other people's money. It's like when you watch a fisherman let the fish take the line further and further out to sea, and you think he'll let it run forever. He won't. At some point, he's going to lock the line and start reeling it in. And it's only then that you get to taste something new. Something you've not had before. Because it's at that point, you taste the hook.
you glory. And that concludes the first half. Those of you with loads of money, mine's a pint. For everyone else, you have 15 minutes to beg, borrow, or busk your way to the next Bradbury Memorial Prize. She's currently working on a novel set in 18th century Deptford, chronicling the menage a trois between a merchant, a courtesan, and a mermaid. Lois is an actress and creative, interested in consciousness, communication, and adding to our enjoyment of life here on this spinning ball of rock, hurtling through space-time. Pause was mine, not hers. <laughs> Likes singing at the top of her voice, throwing fierce shakes on the dance floor, diving headfirst into a project, and making you laugh. Lois! Offended by Rowan's loose tunic, knobbly raw silk, navy blue. A trapeze dress, she snaps, unhindered by the oxygen tube that loops under her nose. What's that when it's alone? You don't wear a trapeze. You don't wear a cocoon. It's nice stuff now, and it's cause. I saved up. You want to take more pride in yourself, Row? You've got such a pretty figure. Not like your mum. <laughs> Why have you got to go dressing up like a little match girl? Oh, cut us some slack, says Rowan's dad, who is looking out of the window with his hands in his pockets. She's come all this way. Oh, she's a good girl, really. Nan looks little and faded in the hospital bed. The sheets are too white and the windows are too big, letting too much chilly grey light spill in. She's wearing a candy pink angora cardigan, which smells of her talc. But they've taken all her rings and bracelets off her, and so to Rowan, she looks exposed. Slack, putty-coloured skin, and knobbly knuckles, and naked, skinny wrists. At home, she'd be ensconced on the couch in her velour dressing gown, surrounded by her souvenir cushions and her carnival glass, bright as jellies. She'd have her ashtray shaped like a spaniel. She'd have her little satinette quilt. She'd be okay. Rowan's dad leans against the radiator under the window and gets out his crossword. He's been hanging around the hospital long enough to know that nothing is going to happen very fast, that these are not moments to cling to. Rowan pulls a plastic chair up to Nancy's bedside. I've got you some presents, she says putting them from her satchel and laying them on the little tray over the bed. A box of milk tray and some synthetic crushed velvet slippers from Primark. Hot pink. To help you feel better. Nan has to shuffle herself more upright to see them. An effort. Her cardigan slips. Her hospital gown gapes. And Rowan can see the cannula by her collarbone. But Nan's attention is all absorbed by her presence. She spreads her fingers happily like a small child trailing tubes. Oh, she says, now these are nice, very nice. Where do you find these? She presses the slippers between her fingers. Cozy, she clucks. You're a good girl. 
She is greedy always for the cheapest sort of opulence. Faux fur, creme de menthe, the porcelain figurines advertised in the back of her weekly magazines. It's easy to make her happy. Ten pounds, well spent. Where are you living now, bro? You'll never guess. Rowan clasps her hands in her lap. Well then, save me the trouble. Deptford. Deptford? Her usual disbelieving squawk. Why do you want to do that? Well, my studio's there. It's cheap. It's nice. Don't tell me about Deptford. I know all about Deptford. Grew up there, didn't I? I know you did. Nice, she says. No, I remember Deptford. Our family lived there ever since they were rising to live in. Hundreds of years. Really? Hundreds? Well, who can know who's writing it down? She fumbles at the buttons of her cardi to hide the bits of plastic sticking out of her skin. We had a bed stall in the market. We lived... We lived... Poland Street, it was called. 34 Poland Street. Behind the high street, we've got Auntie Mary next door and our Kathleen round the corner. None of it's there anymore. Council pulled it all down when your dad was a little boy. Slums, is what they said. Not fit for habitation. No eating, no toilets, none of that. We had to fetch water from the pump. She is plucking at the bed sheets. The backs of her hands are puckered with surgical tape and dark with a bloom of pooled blood. You don't need to worry about me, Nan. I've got running water. Well, some people like it. My dad, he wouldn't leave. They'd given him a thousand pounds to move out. Back then, mind, that's real money. But he didn't want to go. There were rats and no street lights, but he said no, no. He couldn't leave his stall. Not that it belonged to him anymore. They fixed him up with a nice new flat, a proper kitchen, no damp. He couldn't get his head round it. He'd never lived in a block of flats before, said Roman's dad, not looking up. He was an old man. He didn't know anyone there. It wasn't fair. Better than leaving him to rot. He died within the year, says Rowan's dad. Nan turns back to Rowan. I don't know what you want to live there for. It's really different now. I'll take your word for it. But later, when it's time for Rowan's dad to drive her back to the station, her nan clasps her hands in her little dry fingers and says, Fancy you living in Deptford. We spent 60 years dragging ourselves out of there and you with your foreign art degree, you turn around and go straight back. And Rowan cannot tell if she is disappointed or pleased. In the morning, Rowan makes coffee on the stove. She lives in a flat over the fish shop on the high street and she likes to lean on the windowsill and watch the market traders setting up their stall. They're calling to one another shouting and laughing over the beep of reversing vans and the crash of scaffolding. Out the back, Mr. Ramachandran and his sons carry in polystyrene cartons of today's deliveries. There are chips of ice scattered on the tarmac of the loading bay, sparkling as they melt. A jangle of keys at the front door and Rowan's housemate Etta lets herself in, her arms full of box files. She is studying for a PhD at Goldsmiths. She wears horn rim glasses and a kente headscarf. Her lipstick is cherry red. Oh, you can't get anything photocopied bound here anymore, she says. You can, says Rowan. Across the road from the station, there's a, a copy shop. 
No, it's gone. It's all been turned into studios. There's a raw food cafe. Christ, what's happening to this place? Don't ask me, you're part of the problem. And what about you? Etta rips open a packet of kimchi. <laughs> At least I'm from round here, she remarks. I'm from round here. You're from Manningtree. Etta finds a fork and eats straight from the packet. Yeah, but my nan was born here. We are old, old Deptford. What are you? Second generation? Right, right. You know how my dad managed to find a place here when he first arrived from Ghana? Because people, like your nan, had all shipped out. They didn't want to be here anymore. You're saying you'd be living here even if it weren't getting gentrified to fuck. You're saying you would. Etta is laughing. At least I'd stand a chance of getting my photocopying done. Anyway, I bet I know more about this place than you do, little Miss Old Deptford. Do you want to know a fact? Okay. Rowan sips her coffee. Etta picks at her kimchi. So, she says, way back when, in the 18th century, Deptford was a pretty wealthy place. Everybody worked at the dockyards building the ships. They were highly skilled craftsmen. So, one of the little perks was to take away all the leftover wood. Great big beams, some of them, from building these battleships. And these leftover bits of wood were called chips. Got it? Right. They used to build their houses from them sometimes. This house was probably built using chips. This house was definitely built the same way you build a ship. Rowan looks around the kitchen. Somewhere underneath the smooth tiles and laminate floor are the hefty beams pegged tightly together. If your people lived here back then, they probably worked in the dockyard. Now, the Admiralty didn't like a lot of the ways these depth of people worked, and they especially didn't like them taking the chips away. They tried to crack down on them, and the dockyard workers unionised. Nobody did that back then. The Navy sent troops in to deal with them. So if you, Rowan, have a chip on your shoulder, ah... Then you're a Deptford dockyard worker standing up to the man, taking what's yours. Oh, I like that. The things you don't know about your hometown, huh? Rowan rinses her mug. I'm going to the studio, she says. I'll walk with you. I'm on a quest for Deptford's last surviving photocopier. <laughs> the flat is part of a little warren of tenements. Rowan and Etta must walk a drafty corridor with narrow staircases that leap off it to unexpected corners. It gives out onto a flat roof covered in decking, where tenants keep their potted geraniums and their fixed gear bicycles. And then there is a dark concrete staircase down to the street. It's busy now. The pavement's half covered with market stalls, so passers-by pick their way through slowly, in single file. African women swathed in Ankara prints Hipsters with their string bags and Breton tops. Stooped men as old as Nan. Have they always lived here? Would they remember her? There are bin bags and crates of rubbish piled by lampposts to be taken away and bits of stray fruit in the gutter. Pulpy plums too far gone to sell. Grapes that have tripped off their stalks. Let's get off the pavement, Etta says and they dart down the gap between two canvas-walled stalls to walk in the middle of the road where there's more space. 
Under blue tarpaulin awnings, they are selling remaindered Topshop dresses and Xbox games. Thieves, don't waste your time, a handwritten sign above me says. The sleigh boxes are empty. <laughs> Still thinking about those ship houses, says Rowan. The buildings behind the stalls and shop fronts are crooked and grimy, with net curtains at some of the windows and others blocked by stacks of boxes within. See how grand they are. There was money here once, says Etta. It's true that behind the shops, convenience and value, Silk Road Asian supermarket, pound shop, there are handsome barreled fronts and broad sash windows rotting away. Up above, the cranes are pivoting slowly. There's money here again, says Rowan. She and Etta stop to look at the posters on the hoardings. A brand new complex of one and two bed luxury flats. Private gym facilities and an underground car park. That's that then. We're priced out. Where are we going next? I think there's only Catford left. <laughs> Start getting used to it. The other half of the market, past the hot dog van and the man who auctions bolts of fabric to a gathering crowd, is all house clearance stuff. Saucepans and alarm clocks and piles of old coats. Etta peels off to inspect a box full of Pyrex teacups. Rowan picks through a stack of art books, their pages crimped and speckled with mould. She finds an old roses tin full of somebody's sewing kit. Wooden cotton reels neatly tucked together, a green felt needle case, scissors and an unpicker in white plastic sheets. There's a simplicity pattern for a pleated knee-length skirt, size 16, and scrawled on it in biro is somebody's name. Philomena, Rome reads. She reaches out to grab Etta's elbow. Look at this. Do you think everything on this table is her stuff? Probably, says Etta. She's been to Charmel Chic on holiday, look. She holds up a little bottle layered with different colours of sand. She bought a yoghurt maker 30 years ago and never took it out of its box. <laughs> Do you think she's dead now? Well, I suppose so. Or in a home. There are tears crippling the backs of Rowan's eyes. It's so sad. Why is all her stuff here? Didn't she have family who wanted it? What? Her collection of cotton reels? Her rolls of undeveloped film? Her crappy 70s sherry glasses? They're not exactly heirlooms, are they? They were hers. Maybe nobody cared about her at the end. Maybe they knew what to let go of. It's just stuff. Stuff is important. Rome wants to gather up everything on the stall, to piece Philomena back together from the detritus of her life. All these things are going to get spread about and then nobody will remember who she was. Etta rolls her eyes. You don't know who she was. Come on, let's get out of here. They walk up the high street arm in arm, passing the building that used to be a job centre but which is now called a bar called Job Centre. Poor <laughs> people go away, Mrs. Etta. If you can't be ironic about unemployment, we don't want your sorts. <laughs> Outside the church, a laminated sign, all the lead from this roof has already been stolen. <laughs> Rowan's phone starts to ring. It's my dad. 
stares at the screen. Gonna answer me? No. She flips it to ignore. But as soon as she makes to return it to her pocket, it starts to buzz again, angry in her palm. I know what he's going to say. She gets ignore again, and again. They are standing together on the pavement saying nothing. Their heads bent over the screen. You've got to pick it up, said Etta, her hand on Rowan's shoulder. No, I haven't. I think it's an emergency. But Rowan has already shoved it into her pocket and she is walking fast, away from the church, her feet dodging squashed hot dog rolls and flyers for hot yoga. Etta is chasing after her, but Rowan can't turn around. She just keeps walking until she gets back to the market. She is casting about for the round blue tin, the collection of useless junk that is about to be dispersed. How much do you want for this? She asks the stallholder. He casts a cursory glance over it. He glances at Rowan, too. Down to you. You want a bag? No, that's okay. She is clutching it to her chest with both arms. She starts to run between the market stalls, between the tall, ship-built houses. She holds the tin so close she can feel her heartbeat hammering through it. special podcast. Do stay tuned for that. We'll be back here at the Phoenix on the 14th of April with Trial and Error. If you are a writer, our next open theme is Master and Servant. Details of this, along with all of the years remaining themes and videos and recordings, are on the Liars website. And so, the final story of the evening will be Fly Like a Dolphin by Rob Passmore, will be read by Max Brake. Rob lives in Hackney, but likes going to other places. <laughs> when forced, he works in social housing. He's currently entering short story competitions, as no one will publish his novel, and he can't be bothered to write another one. <laughs> Max studied drama at Manchester University and trained at Mountview. He works regularly as a voiceover artist. Max! I also spent an hour on Sunday trying to print this out on Deputy High Street. <laughs> Fly Like a Dolphin by Rob Parsons. One of the first things he said to me, or felt any of the other crap about the fixes and fiddles and scams that he runs, I always give value, he said. I always make money. 
My greed is more powerful than anything else. Step one. Look at yourself. Look yourself in the eyes. I glance at myself in the polished chrome pillar I'm leaning against and then back down at the crumpled script in my hand lit by tawdry phone light. I'm stood in the middle of a newly developed plaza. There's some nice mosaic paving in a cinema and a water feature that looks ill at ease with its surroundings, despite those frolicking spurts of water that bounce between hidden nozzles. The excessive lighting in the square makes each of the exits more ominous. Menace seems to lurk outside this oasis of regeneration. I read on. Step two. Look yourself in eyes. You is strong. You is man. Step two seems remarkably similar to step one. <laughs> but I do as I'm told. I don't look strong. I don't look man. I, I look weak. Not like Mariusz, the man whose broken English rings around my head. Mariusz would never be nervous. Mariusz is better than me, and he knows it. I turn back to the street. Gentrification verges in Walthamstow, but hasn't bloomed. These are still Mariusz's streets. They were as soon as he got off the boat. Step three. You know, he's written my name here, but as I don't want you to know my name, we'll call me A4, because that's what he calls me. You know, A4, there is appreciation in my side for you, because in my side, I feel that we have the bond. The adhesive trust bond. You are doing these things because I have wisdomed you, but you must be adhesive to that wisdom. And you are. You trust, and it is transcendental to me. <laughs> now, Ephor, spot yourself a place next to the machine. I have engineered for you a drawing to enable such position. On the page, a rudimentary sketch with an X in the middle reflects the point at which I am stood. Mariusz is still learning to write English, but as he explained to me, he doesn't need to be taught. No one can teach him anything. He does, however, own a thesaurus. <laughs> Step four. Now you must be picking them up. Ah, screw you conjugating and screw you tenses. You know what I mean, A4. I am the colossus of literature. Like your Shakespeare, but significant amount less homosexual. <laughs> Pick the mark. Pick the mark now. Let's get this shirt on the road. And light up cigarette so you can be uh, distinguished from pedophile. <laughs> I look around for a suitable victim and accidentally catch the eye of a middle-aged man coming out of the cinema with his two children. I light the cigarette. 
Mariush is right. It's okay to hang around outside looking shifty if you're smoking. The notion that I have to actively avoid looking like a paedophile outside a family-friendly entertainment venue brings me to how I got here. There are times when you're on your own and you want a coffee. And you walk into a place thinking, you can just get a coffee. When that place is on the edges of London and there's no Starbucks, it could be someplace like the place I walked into. He was sat at the table. I wasn't even sure if he worked there. What do you want? He said. Uh, flat white, I said. Like you, <laughs> he said. You're a flat white. <laughs> You're A4. I'm not A4, I said. Like paper, <laughs> he said. Then he stopped laughing. You motherfucker, he said. Sit down, A4. <laughs> and kicked out a chair. That's how I met Mariush. <laughs> he didn't work there. Get this motherfucker a flat white, he shouted. Without the flat. <laughs> and without the white. When the coffee was placed in front of me, it looked like treacle. Mariush was just staring. You know, uh, my friends come to this country and stand outside your fucking weak superstore on the Seven Sisters Road and wait to be picked up by any bargain basement construction fuck who want cheap labor without paying the taxes. You know what we get for that work? For standing in a car park and getting in the back of any van that comes along? Less than minimum wage. You know how many men I know got in the back of a van and didn't get back out of it? You know who cares? I didn't know what to say. Uh, no, I said. What do you do, A4? That you is able to wander around Walthamstow in the middle of the day? No worries for you. I'm a freelance writer. I too am a writer, A4. I am much vocabulary. Oh, good, I said. I only write for accountancy periodicals. I'm not a proper writer. I just moved here. How much you make uh, periodically writing about accounts? Uh, not much. That's why I had to move out here. So, uh, how you... Uh, Keep your woman in the styles to which she is accustomed. <laughs> I, I don't. I, I don't have uh, a woman. Where are you from? Hampstead. <laughs> so you like the homosexual, yes? <laughs> no, 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 I'm not homosexual. I, I'm just single. Don't you want a woman? I suppose... So what are you doing about it? I don't know. Uh, dating websites. You English pricks with your dating sites <laughs> and slippers. Get some boards. Pig boards. You make no money. That's why you rely on your hand for onanism. Yet you pay a dating site 
I tell you how to get a woman. And I'll relieve you of some money for the trouble. But at least my methodology will be the success. You tell me what kind of woman you like it for. Other than the lady boys, yes. <laughs> but first, we smoke. We've been smoking shisha leg with weed through a hookah for about four hours. <laughs> when... One of his mates got so fucked he fell headfirst into a table when trying to stand up. He came up pumping blood out of an eyebrow. The rest of them fell about. I couldn't help but smirk. Now you are sore, <laughs> laughed Marius. You saw like an eagle. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not the same sore. <laughs> I began, but swiftly gave up. I had little recollection of anything that had taken place other than giving Mariusz ten pounds for the benefit of his extensive knowledge. So, A4, now I have your money. You come back tomorrow and I give you your instructions. Oh, I said, okay. Step five. You pick one yet, A4? Let me incrementally support you in this traverse. You have two swords. One. You have to be quick with this one. She's coming from the bus stop or the tubular train. She's going straight for it. No messing around. When you see her, you must be instantaneously decisioning. She's not hanging around. Two. She is different. Wandering around. Probably waiting for someone. You know with her when she check her phone, then she check her purse, then you know. So, which one is it a for? Who will it going to be? As an interesting aside at this time, I should henceforth enable you with the additional anecdote of my grandfather and grandmother and the momentous occasion of their initial coupling. When my grandfather was young and virile, and he first saw my grandmother, he was very excited in his loins. For she was overly sumptuous, a shape of laziness. He was not inactive in his pursuiting. He did not cogitate excessively. He went to my grandmother and he said to her, you are a thing of divine arousal, I would want you, and I would like to take you to the pictures and woo you, not inconsiderably, this very evening at 7 p.m. <laughs> and she agreed. And later that very evening at 6.50 p.m., he was early to meet her because he was supernaturally excited. So excited that his little man was no longer able to remain little. <laughs> While he was waiting, another girl walked by. Any girl, not divine like my grandmother, and indeed, according to my grandfather, this other girl was particularly abhorrent to behold. How you say, ugly like uh, Chewy the Brick? But my grandfather was so inflamed in the sex stick that he went with this beastly wench and missed 
the appointment liaison with my grandmother altogether. Oh no, you would cry. How will it now come to pass that my grandfather and grandmother will be adhesive eternally in the bonds of love? <laughs> and you would be correct to cry. Because as it eventually came to pass, my grandfather never saw my grandmother again. That beastly wench that he went with instead because he could not wait ten minutes. It was she who was indeed my actual grandmother. <laughs> like you say, the early bird catches the worm. Yes. Except the bird is an ugly woman and the worm is a dick. <laughs> I asked my grandfather if that is why me and my brothers are all as ugly as Chewy the Brick. And he says, yes. But then he hits me in the eye and says that even though my grandmother is ugly as Chewy the Brick, it is very insulting to him to say so. As my grandfather now always says, pick wisely and with unanimity a four. I pick my mark. She loiters, lit up by the lights that spread a comforting glow from above. She's waiting for someone. She just doesn't know it's me yet. I chose her because she's wandering. A number two for marriage. It's cold. But I like what I can see of her wrapped up face. And the way she playfully twists the zip in her fingers. Summons feelings of shared jokes whispered into ears. Lips touching and... Ah, uh, ah. Uh, I get ahead of myself. The next day, today, when I went back to pick up the envelope I paid ten pounds for, Marius had a black eye. He wore it well. It just made him look more menacing. I told you I'd get money out of you, he said, and whacked me playfully around the face with my purchase. It stung, but I, I tried to hide it. This is your nine steps to a healthy fuck life, he said. So, uh, Mariusz, I asked, feeling the barriers between our respective cultures had broken down. Uh, what exactly is it that you do? I'm a landlord, A4. Who's landlord? Lots of people's landlord. You know the trick, A4. I don't own the cats I rent out. Who owns them? The council. That's the trick. When the people the council rent them to move on, those people rent out to me. The council never know. And who do you rent them out to? There's lots of entrepreneurs that want to take advantage of prime retail space in the middle of the city. You want to know what you can get in my shops? I uh, didn't say anything. You want to know it for. I know you do. I nodded. Let's say you've got 150 pounds. I could do any of these for you. One hour and half minutes of sex in color block brothel, including two blows and unlimited cunning, 150 liters of untaxed diesel, 
One bud from a cannabis factory, eight pairs of pumas, one reactivated gun, one fake passport, two fake driving licenses, or half an attack trained pit bull dog. <laughs> he was enjoying this. <laughs> I wish I hadn't asked, I said. You live a sheltered life, before. You come back after you've had a good bouncy sexiness, and we do some coke. <laughs> I left feeling like the barriers were back up. Step six. When she is picked, you must be ready. Stop bumming that fag <laughs> and prepare for imminent action. When she starts towards the machine, you need to make your move. From your position, it should be simplicity for you to reach the machine before her. The mark checks her wallet and looks around. This is my time. This is my moment. I stride out of the shadows towards the machine just as she makes for it. But I've timed my move perfectly. And she's already deferred to my position by the time we join the queue. She never even questioned my getting here just before her. There's a guy in front of me, tapping buttons and inspecting the screen. I've got time to pull the script from my pocket and scan down to the next step. Step seven. You give out 150 pound cash. Not 20 pound or 40. Not a four pack of Stella and frozen San Marco pizza amount. You give out 150 pound because the classification of lady that you want to be enamored with you needs to know that you can buy two grams of coke and get a taxi home. <laughs> That's the man you are. Two grams of coke and a foxy fucking taxi home man. When you push that button and your card has popped out, that's it. You're done. You walk right away from that machine like a man who got important fucking things to do. Got that before. You leave and let that motherfucking money flow out of the machine just as she is presenting herself to it. And she will cogitate to herself, who is this man with the massive pig balls who released 150 big ones from the machine? He is the sort of man who can buy two grams of coke and afford a taxi home. I'm at the cash point. I'm pushing the buttons, but it feels beyond counterintuitive to take my card and leave. People talk doing it all the time, but I can honestly say that I've never even come close. But this is the whole point. This is why I'm here. I can feel it behind me. Maybe stood a bit closer than you would expect the next person in the queue to be. Maybe she already feels the connection between us. I could just lean back and touch her. The machine beeps. My card pops out. I look at it. Hesitation flickers in my mind. Then Mariusz's voice shouts, Do it! in my head. And I do. Step eight. 
Walk away. Do not look back. Just keep walking until she comes to you. And when she does, you make sure you know what you're going to say. I know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, thanks. It's nice to know that there's still some good people in the world, people who do the right thing and don't take advantage of others. Hey, uh, what do you say I buy you a drink? Uh, just to show my appreciation. And she'll say, that would be lovely. <laughs> Give me a look that acknowledges what we both feel. Just like Mariusz's grandfather, we both already feel it in our lungs. I hear footsteps behind me. My shoulders tense. I fold up the script and stick it in my pocket, hesitating only briefly to consider that there was no step nine. A hand taps me on the arm and I turn round to face her. She's even prettier than I thought. My heart leaps. You forgot this, she says, in a Polish accent. I look down. She's not handing me my money. She's handing me a note. I take it and then she begins to walk off. But I say... She smiles over her shoulder and then turns away. I open the note. Step nine. <laughs> I'm sorry, A4. I like you. So could you take on this list? Because that is what this is. Think of all the things you could have had for 150 pounds. <laughs> now you saw like an eagle. But you take my advice, and soon, soon you will fly like a dolphin. <laughs> The stock market closing bell has sounded. And I'm afraid you're all bankrupt. <laughs> so you may as well stick around and drown your sorrows until Phoenix notices your credit is no longer any good. Until then, please give it up for the impoverished actors, the bereft authors, and of course, the surprisingly comfortably well-off liars with one final round of applause. Welcome to the bonus section of the Boom and Bust podcast. This month we had a record 77 stories submitted, and since we only had time to read four of them on the night, we've chosen three other fabulous tales that you will now be able to listen to in stereo. Our first story is Button B by Niall Boyce, read by Greg Page. Niall Boyce is a writer and editor who has escaped from London. 
He has contributed stories to all sorts of places, including the Big Finish Doctor Who range. He has published one novel, Veronica Britton. His next will be better. He doesn't like talking on the telephone. Age six, Greg Page was cast as Joseph in his infant school nativity. Somebody put a tea towel on his head and he became someone else. He hasn't been himself since. He can be contacted through roseburymanagement.com and has no idea what he's done with his keys. Button B by Niall Boyce Read by Greg Page Auguste Boutonnier was an aesthete, neurasthenic, possibly consumptive, and worst of all, a novelist. Yet duty demanded that I interview him. Whatever the nature of the sinister web that had ensnared London, he might hold the key to unravelling it. Those who lived through 1899, that most reprehensible of years, will recall the fear that gripped the city. The terror began insidiously, or at least as insidiously as a series of massive explosions can. The first few were noted by we newspaper men, but attributed to gas and electricity or ill-advised adventures with French recipes dans la cuisine. It was not until the rate accelerated, such that the usual thunder of the traffic along Oxford Street, the chatter in the drinking dens of Soho, the angry haggling with the booksellers on the Charing Cross Road, were punctuated once, twice, and even thrice hourly by the boom and clatter of another residence being blown to smithereens, that people began to spot a pattern. Who or what was behind it all? That was all that anyone talked about. A criminal gang, perhaps, laden with dynamite, stolen from a quarry or a demolition site, blasting their way into people's homes, unable to calibrate the strength of their explosions? Or worse, anarchists, terrorists, bent upon the wholesale destruction of society? My office at the Evening Closer, London's premier newspaper, was inundated with letters and telegrams from groups claiming responsibility, none very convincingly. "'Dear sir,' one began, "'I write to explain my philosophy. "'If modern science teaches us anything, "'it is that the earth is rich with natural elements, "'the combination of which causes explosions. "'The advance of man has been accompanied "'by bigger and bigger bangs. "'It is clear to us that God's purpose "'is best expressed in one word. "'Boom! "'Might we one day discover that when he said, "'Let there be light, dynamite was the substance "'with which he achieved this aim?' and so on and so forth. The lesser papers gave space to this sort of thing. I threw most of these messages into the small fire in my office's grate. Our proprietor, being over-economical with the coal, they provided much-needed warmth. Boutonnier's letter had somehow floated to the top of the stack of correspondence on my desk that morning in March. My name and address were written on the front in neat block capitals. On the back was a wax seal in the shape of a two-hole button, the letter A in the left hole, the letter B in the right. I recognised his emblem immediately, and was sufficiently intrigued to open his missive first. Although nominally a writer, Boutonnier was noted more for his lack of productivity than for his work, his only published novel being a slim volume entitled The Temptation of Antony. 
following the sensation and scandal that accompanied its appearance in print five years before, he had taken to his bed, accepting large advances from several publishing houses, but producing only a series of bon mots rather than the promised novels. And now he had written to me. Why? The note was typically terse. Boutonnier kept correspondence brief. I know the secret of the explosions. Call upon me this afternoon, and I will unburden myself. What could I do but comply? If there was any chance that my paper could reveal the cause of these mysterious and terrifying events, I owed it to my readers to follow through. And it was not an entirely outlandish claim. Although bedridden, Boutonnier was extremely well-connected. His letters might have been short, but he sent a great number of them to his friends and acquaintances. He had also had his bedchamber connected up to the outside world with the very latest electrical, telegraphic and telephonic apparatus. Any twitching of the social network that connected all in this great city, from lords to boot-boys, European princesses to domestic charladies, would sooner or later register in Boutonnier's little room in the tall, narrow house in Barclays Square. I had never met the man. However, Boutonnier was not entirely a stranger to me. I had read his work, of course, having in my possession an unexpurgated copy of his novel that I'd bought during a trip to Paris a few years before. And in my role as a journalist, I had received and replied to several of his missives over the years. He was that most curious of modern creatures, a man many more people felt they knew than could say they had met him. It was not altogether a surprise, therefore, that he should have chosen me to write his story, and my paper, the prestigious closer, to publish it. I immediately set off for Barclay Square. As I made my way down Fleet Street to the cab stand, another explosion rocked the midday thrum of the living city. I quickened my pace. Clearly I could waste no time in giving the public the truth about this terrible scourge. If Boutonnier was as concise in speech as he was in prose, I should have the story written up, fact-checked, edited, and typeset in time for the evening edition. The door of Boutonnier's house was opened by a young maid of striking appearance. As a satirical touch on her master's part, she wore the dark suit and white tie of a butler. I am sure that many would find this shocking, but I am a well-travelled man who has seen all that London has to offer, and was thus untroubled by it. In fact, the effect was quite bewitching. "'I am Alfred Popper, of the evening closer,' I said, presenting my card. "'Mr. Boutonnier wishes to speak with me.' "'Very good, sir,' said Boutonnier's maid, or I suppose I should say butler. "'He is expecting you.' She turned and led me up a broad stairway. The carpet of the best Turkish weave was thick and luxuriant, masking completely the noise of our footfalls. Into the silence drifted a voice, one high, pure, strong, and, as far as I could make out, Italian. I recognised it as the dying words of Mimi in Puccini's La Boheme, who, as with the protagonist of Verdi's La Traviata, found fatal respiratory illness no impediment to one final aria. The sound was quite arresting, echoing around that vast stairwell. 
It was too clear to be omitted by a phonogram, and I presumed that Boutonnier was now spending his publisher's money on private lunchtime recitals from leading sopranos. Imagine my amazement when, upon my reaching the door, the song halted, and an unseen audience immediately burst into rapturous applause and cries of bravo. Good heavens, I said to the butler-maid, has he built an entire auditorium in there? She did not answer, but smiled, turned the handle, and opened the door to her master's chamber. I hovered uncertainly on the threshold until she pressed a single finger, strong and hard as iron, into the small of my back, propelling me inward. The room was dimly lit by a single red lantern. As my eyes adjusted, I saw that the walls were lined with bookshelves and tapestries, the curtains were closed, and at the centre, surrounded by a fug of tobacco smoke, lying supine upon a chaise long, joining in enthusiastically with the adulation of the crowd, was Auguste Boutonnier. Bravissima! he cried. Drifts of smoke wreathed his clapping hands. He turned to face me. Mr. Popper, I am sorry you did not arrive sooner. You would have enjoyed it. He reached out to the little side table next to him, turned a switch on the box resting there, and abruptly as the spirits at Prospero's feast, the noise of the crowd vanished into thin air. Mr. Boutonnier, I... What was that? How was it done? Open the curtains, pull up a chair, and I will tell you all. I did as he asked. In the grey afternoon light that limped through the windows, he seemed smaller, far diminished from the demonic music-lover I had seen in outline. He was a small, pale man, with neatly trimmed moustaches and Cupid's bow lips. "'If you look at the corner of the ceiling,' he said, "'you will learn the secret. You see that device there, yes? What does it remind you of?' "'Why?' I replied. It it's like an earpiece of an enormous telephone receiver. And that, my dear Mr. Popper, is precisely what it is. Controlled from this box, you see. I place a call to the Royal Opera House using my regular telephone. He indicated the familiar candlestick-like apparatus resting next to the box on the side table. And then I flick the switch here. And there you have it. The matinee performance piped directly from Covent Garden to my own sitting-room. A great boon. And yet I wonder if we might press on to business. You wrote to me claiming to have discovered the secret of these ghastly explosions. Boutonnier's eyes narrowed. Ah, but, Mr. Popper, everything is connected. The telephone, me, you and the recent outbreak of detonations. As if to punctuate his statement, yet another blast sounded in the distance. Boutonnier raised his eyebrows wearily, and pulled out a scrapbook from beneath the chaise long. He opened it and handed it to me. Here you are. Do you remember writing this? How could I forget? It was the obituary of one Albert Knopf, a German immigrant and a pioneer of telephonic communication. For years he had worked in isolation, enduring poverty and ridicule, and he had not even lived to see the massive success that his company ultimately achieved. 
over half the telephones in London were Knopf models, prized for their economy, reliability and the high quality of their reception. Knopf had passed away half a decade ago in a laboratory fire, his scientific interests having extended to experimentation with highly flammable kinematic film with tragic results. I said as much to Boutonnier, who pointed at his telephone. This device was manufactured by the Knopf company. Nothing unusual. It is identical to all the other Knopf telephones out there in our great metropolis. Would you examine it, please? I picked up the contraption. It is, as you say, a standard Knopf. Precisely. Did I mention that I knew Knopf personally? You did not. A strange man. A driven man, I would say. Boutonnier sighed. In the last few months of his life, he became terribly worried about the spread of the telephone. He thought it would destroy civility. Requiring neither the thoughtfulness of a letter nor the tact of a face-to-face -face confrontation, he feared that the telephone would lead to an uncontrollable explosion in hostility. Anonymous and abusive calls, for example. He was right, of course. Anyone in the public eye will tell you that. I receive some half-dozen malicious communications a day. As do I, I exclaimed. And in anticipation of this, Knopf turned against his own invention? Now, here was a story that was worth the trip, whether or not the matter of the explosions was cleared up. Perhaps sensing my excitement, Boutonnier held up his hand in the manner of conductor, urging his orchestra to play Largo. Not quite. He modified it. But his work was incomplete at the time of his death. Look again at the telephone. You see those two buttons on the base? Button A and button B, I said. I'm so familiar with them I hardly notice them, though I have never learnt their purpose. As I said, Knopf left unfinished business. He had an idea for civilising the telephone. There were two mechanisms. His first choice was button A. When pressed, this would allow one to see the face of the person at the other end of the line, thus reminding the speakers that they were addressing real, living human beings. Hence his fascination with the kinematograph. Quite so. Alas, he never completed his work on button A. After Knopf's death, his successors, who did not understand his particular genius, produced his telephones to his exact specifications without really comprehending what they were making. It took them a few years, but they managed it, right down to the smallest detail. Including button B? Now we come to the point, said Boutonnier darkly. Button B, Mr. Popper, is fully functional. "'Fully functional?' I gasped. "'Then, sir, one question remains. "'What is the function?' "'Quite simple, Mr. Popper. "'All Knopf telephones are fitted with this property. "'Upon pressing button B, "'the telephone at the other end of the line, "'and hence the person delivering insults via that line, "'immediately explodes in a lightning ball of death. "'Good God!' It's monstrous. It, it, it's terrible. It, it's grotesque. It's effective, Boutonnier interjected. Quite effective. 
You've used it? Only once. Knopf told me all about Button B. I didn't know if he was being facetious or not, and then he passed away, without leaving any notes on the subject. So there was only one way to find out. One day I received a particularly foul anonymous call from a man saying, well, you might guess, before I knew it, I had pressed Button B. And? As far as I can tell, it proved quite effective. The next day's news reports of an unexplained explosion gave me a clue to the caller's identity. Who would have believed that a man of the cloth knew such language? This thing, I stammered, is, is a public hazard. I will publish this very day. I will let the world know all about it. It is a relief, Mr. Popper, to have this bitter cup, this frightful dilemma, taken from me. I paused and thought for a second. What do you mean by this frightful dilemma? It is quite simple. There are two possibilities if you publish. The first is wholesale war and destruction via the telephone network, tit-for-tat, escalating to massive carnage and the ultimate abandonment of telephonic devices for good. He inhaled from his cigarette, in which case I shall miss the opera. And the second? Everyone becomes a great deal more polite. The world might turn terribly dull, but now that you have the knowledge, the choice, Mr. Popper, is yours. The choice was mine. I returned to my office at the closer and turned those words over and over in my head. What should I do? Button B was behind a swathe of explosions, some set off intentionally by those who had heard rumours of its awful power, others undoubtedly accidental. Would the dissemination of the secret of Button B destroy civilization, or save it? As I dithered, the press deadline getting closer and closer, the Knopf telephone on my desk jangle-growled. I picked it up and took the call. The voice at the other end was muffled, as if the man spoke through a handkerchief. Is this, uh, is this Mr. Popper, the newspaper man? He asked. I replied in the affirmative. Then, sir, he continued, I will deliver a piece of my mind, Mr. Sewer Rat, Mr. Gong Farmer, Mr. Muxnipe. My anonymous caller continued in this vein for some minutes with no sign of flagging. Anger rose in my breast and I made to break the connection. But then I reconsidered. I kept firm hold of the earpiece with my right hand, while my left index finger strayed down to the base of my telephone, where it came to rest, lightly, on button B. Our second story of the bonus podcast is your next bestseller, A Collateralised Debt Obligation Too Far, by J.P.E. Bucket. Written by Casalina Boto and read by Peter Noble. Casalina Boto is a lawyer based in London. She planned to write a novel during her current maternity leave. However, her daughter had other plans and they have agreed on this 2300 word story. Peter Noble was born in a South African valley, lovely beyond any scene of it. Hippie musicians dragged him from an idyllic childhood, running barefoot through rich and matted grass with his dog, Bartok, to vegetarian communes from California to India, 
by Lisbon, London and Findhorn. He likes telling stories. Your next bestseller, A Collateralised Debt Obligation Too Far by J.P.E. Bucket by Casalina Boto read by Peter Noble. Adam Smith on capitalism. Marx's spectre of communism. Tobin and his tax. Oh, their names alone bring an undeniably handsome smile to my face. You know the one. The one that enhances my dimples and makes my eyes sparkle. Yes, these old things. Some still say they're as beautiful as the ocean, but twice as deep. But come, I digress. Amartya, Friedman, Stiglitz. What shoulders for me to stand on. Now these giants have been my dear, dear friends since I decided to become an economist, around the age that most toddlers are coming to terms with not having a nappy to crap in. Why, of course, our journey has had its wobbles, and what a story those wobbles make. An emotional, action-packed, unput-downable rollercoaster ride of a story. Life in the fast lane. Or perhaps the thriller of the 21st century. Anyway, a full introduction seems unnecessary. You'll remember me by now. Jonathan P.E. Bouquet. Matriculation, 1995. Double first, philosophy, politics and economics. University College, Oxford. Yes, that's right. The economics enigma, as the world affectionately called me. Why, until my heyday, economists barely dared to predict such cataclysmic crises, such devilish disasters, such tumultuous turmoil. I should probably also mention that I have an accredited qualification in creative writing. Though it was a dream, a delightful dream. Yes, yes, I can feel them. The dimples are showing again, aren't they? So, where to begin? Pegatha, I suppose. I should start with Pegatha. It was the second lecture of our economics masters when I first heard her gravelly voice. She attacked the lecturer on his preposterous views that heterogeneous production goods can be included in a mathematically trackable intertemporable equilibrium construction. Dear Pegatha was so engaging that my daydream about Modigliani and Miller's life cycle theory of consumption came to an unsatisfactory halt. Spend now, save later. Good chap, modders. Being the perfect economist, Pegatha had no interpersonal skills and insisted on focusing on people's hairline when engaging in conversation, whilst awkwardly invading their personal space. But then, boom! By God! When you threw a little budget deficit into the discussion, well, it was like dynamite. I followed her out of the lecture hall on that second day and just went in for the kill. Micro or macro, gun to your head, which would you choose? Her eyes lit up, her breath quickened, and her hand was clammy as I shook it in mine. I don't mind admitting that I could practically see her cerebral cortex pulsing as she considered my proposition. Mocha Frappuccino was my killer follow-up. She nodded, instantly charmed. 
It was one of those conversations, you know the ones. By the end, we knew everything that mattered about each other, from our GCSE results. 10A stars, 1A general studies. To our respective views on the sustainability of the post office's new 3% savings account. But it was when she talked about how subprime mortgages were being securitized as CDOs and spun into... Oh, my bad. You probably aren't quite following. Well, anyway, it was when Pegatha broached the topic of CDOs. That was the moment, right there. Wednesday, 14th of April, 1999, I fell head over heels into a topsy-turvy, head-spinning, body-jolting, ideal romance novel kind of love, collateralized debt obligations. I had imagined my life complete before those little babies came along. The next day I told my professor that I would be devoting my masters to understanding every nook and cranny of my beloved CDOs. He tried to deter me. I can't say I fully support an in-depth study of the subject. It's just really, well, really rather dull. But I felt like I imagined Keynes did when he started penning the general theory. Sorry, sorry. In terms that a layman will understand, like when E.L. James knew she was onto something with Fifty Shades, I felt sexy. I felt invincible. Two years later, I knew more about CDOs and the U.S. subprime mortgage market than anyone would allow themselves to dream possible. I still discussed some of the more simplistic related concepts with Pegatha, and there's no denying it did on occasion become rather irksome when she changed the subject, typically to some micro-level drivel. How could I possibly contribute to such tedium when some of life's fundamental questions on CDOs lay flirting next to us? My CDOs were all-consuming. So consuming that I hadn't noticed my love for Pegatha, which crept up on me slowly, and then one Thursday morning startled me with a sharp tap on the right shoulder. Jonathan, dear God, I've put in my time listening to your bullshit, she said whilst staring at my forehead before pinning my shoulders onto our favoured library table, jumping on top and kissing me squarely on the lips. It was wet, awkward, and left me with an unsightly cold sore. But I suppose it's true that all good things happen in threes. My masters, Pegatha, and then global economic Armageddon. My world was shaken up like a snow globe, and I watched with aching dimples at the turmoil which floated down and surrounded me. CDOs, Northern Rock, mortgage defaults, AIG, the subprime market, Lehman's. I had never been happier. It was all the rage. People couldn't get enough. Lorraine Kelly did an idiot's guide to securitization, or so I'm told, and my mother's weekly calls became daily. 
just how will all this impact house prices in Tunbridge Wells? Sheila from the Bridge Club must be embarrassed that both her boys are in banking. The rumour doing the rounds is that one of them's even involved in this short-selling business, although Sheila doesn't like to talk about it. I have to steady myself, just remembering the finger-tingling excitement. Imagine every Christmas present you've ever wanted, goddammit, and birthday too being bought for you with free next-day delivery and one click of a 30-day Amazon Prime trial button. I didn't know that it was possible to be, well, so interesting. My parents had asked the standard questions previously, of course, with that tilt of the head and those half-glazed eyes. I know you've told us before, darling, but what do you do again? My sweet spot is subprime mortgages. How they were securitized as CDOs and spun into SNRDIs and all within the HNOB mes debt space. I would explain as simply as I could. My father's mind wandered to Afghanistan, Obama or some other fashionable story. My mother confronted her concerns head on. That's all very well, dear, but... Girls just aren't interested in your demand curves. And the ones that are, well, they're often quite... Well, they're odd, aren't they, Jonathan, darling? But that all changed from 08. Those golden days were like something out of one of those economic science fiction thrillers that you just can't put down. Yes, I know, there's a real gap in the market for them at the moment. I mean... You fantasise about these things. The redundancies, the doom and gloom, unemployment soaring, interest rates plummeting, the economy in a coma. But to actually experience it, it was mind-blowing. It all stemmed from my seminal paper published in August 2005. You know the one. I had predicted the whole goddamn beautiful thing. Robert Peston knew all about me, tracked me down, and overnight the two of us were everywhere. We were the maverick and goose of economics, and, truth be told, I was maverick. ITV, The Beeb, Channel 4, Fox News, CNN. I was headline news. I often say that my only real rival would have been that octopus predictor, but he had spread his net too thinly with the whole football focus. And leading economist Jonathan P.E. Bucket is here to give us his views on today's business news, was my typical lead-in, followed by my preferred shot from the right. I tended to then stare at the camera with a heavy silence, before adopting my infamously reassuring and confident tone to explain the latest developments to the masses, in short sentences, that they would understand. I was coined the economics enigma of the modern age. Oh, and by gosh, did worldwide fame and adoration have its perks. I could sense people looking over, hear their whispers. It's that bloke off the telly. Look, there, three o'clock, the business guy. Those dimples. I am told I was even a contender for rear of the year. Whilst I have... Obviously, never wasted time googling myself. I do believe the competition in 2008 was particularly strong. 
I strutted around like a magnificent peacock with my knowledge of CDOs splayed out for the public to admire. Perhaps, unsurprisingly, being propositioned became all part of a day's work. Yes, yes, of course it was awkward. I hadn't been wittingly approached by a woman since... Well, I can't immediately recall an example other than Pegatha. But I didn't have eyes for anyone else, as I reassured Pegatha on each of the numerous occasions that a member of the fairer sex tried her luck. When I did engage in conversation with any of them, it was only so that Pegatha and I could have a good old giggle afterwards at her simplistic views on matters such as the latest round of quantitative easing. Oh, Pegatha. She was as divine a soulmate as one could hope for. Don't get me wrong, we were physically compatible too. Well, as long as I kept the oral antivirals to hand. But it was our meeting of minds that this world will never see again. The glorious hours we whiled away at our favoured library table, chewing the fat. About, well, about anything and everything although we did often focus on subjects that were directly relevant to CDOs. Of course, from time to time we would stray and discuss the big boys and their theories. I would watch in awe as her eyes narrowed, her lips pursed, and her face took on a brooding intensity that even my love for the famous economists fell short of. You economist groupie, you, I used to tease. The truth is that aside from with my craft, I had never been in love before. I suppose it was when Pegatha and I had the occasional conversation about the weather, the latest film releases, or our preferred Farrow and Ball shades that I found them, well, sometimes interesting. I genuinely wanted to know whether she preferred Elephant's Breath or Skimming Stone. That's when I knew she was the one. The one I'd marry, the one I'd have children with, the one I'd allow to read my world-class economics papers before anyone else. La dolce vita. Life was indeed beautiful. And then the skies caved in. It was the icy winter of '09. Oh, the drama. The bit in a bestseller which nails readers to their seats and makes all other literary agents green with envy for not having seen the author's potential. It started with the green shoots. Green shoots? There is no green. We're like pigs in a shitty swamp, I explained to the fickle public. But gone were the heady summer days of redundant bankers staggering from glass towers to their Porsches with cardboard boxes that wouldn't fit in the boot. We are still in the throes of a quadruple recession. 10.9% of you will lose your jobs this afternoon. 25.8% of you will be homeless next month. And there's a 24.5% chance that you won't even be able to shop in Waitrose this time next year. I tried to convince the masses. But nothing worked for me. The calls dried up. I had predicted everything in the past decade, but failed to imagine that CDOs could simply stop 
being sexy. I should have known it would all unravel from there. The devil crept up on me with his side-parting, lopsided glasses and braces. Eric, the Eurozone maverick. I watched as he took my place next to Peston on the Beeb, as he stole my column in The Guardian. Even Lorraine interviewed him. How I grimaced as he patronisingly tried to convince the masses that a Greek exit became interesting if he called it a Grexit. And then Pegatha left me. There was no, it's not you, it's me. She didn't still love me, but I was no longer in love with me. It was a simple, you're just not the economist I hoped you'd be. And that was the last time she addressed my hairline and turned her back on our favoured library table. Shortly afterwards, Eric, the Eurozone maverick, appeared on CNN with a cold sore on the top right-hand side of his mouth. I now spend my time fantasising about things turning around, about the glory days of unemployment, stagnation, depression, food banks, house repossessions. Oh, you get the picture. OK, well, that's it, really. My memoirs in a nutshell. All of the other avenues seem to have dried up, you know. Presenting Countdown, going down the workout DVD route. Or perhaps I'm a celebrity. And sadly, it's not the right season for Christmas lights. But my memoirs. Well, someone said I should come and pitch the idea to you. And if my base case predictions are correct, then with a bit of luck, the UK will be in the darkest of depressions by 2022. It will be truly awful and give us plenty of material for volume two. I can feel my dimples showing. Hang on. I might take a quick selfie. This is exactly the look I imagine we'll use for the book cover. Our third and final story of the bonus podcast is The Project by Anna Mazzola, read by Michael Lyle. Anna Mazzola's short fiction has won or been placed in several competitions. She is working on a historical crime novel, The Unseeing, and is represented by Juliet Mushins at the Agency Group. Anna lives in Camberwell with two cats, two small children and one husband. Michael Lyle's credits include work at the Old Vic, the RSC, Theatre Royal Bath, West Yorkshire Playhouse, History Boys UK Tour, the Bush Theatre and Theatre Royal Stratford East. He has worked with BBC Drama on Hashtag The Last Hours of Laura Kay and BBC Radio The Fix out this month. He is currently rehearsing for a UK tour of Danny the Champion of the World. What you doing, fam? You'll break it. Leo watched Max run at the cleaning cart and jump into it, sending it skidding up the bowling lane and battering into the skittles, which jumped sideways and into the air. The sound as they smashed to the ground reverberated off the walls like bullets. Your dad'll kill you if he sees you doing that. Yeah? Well, he ain't here, though. Max climbed out of the trolley, shook himself down, and then trundled it back up the alley to the far end. He was a short boy, and his tracksuit trousers hung too long over his trainers. His hair hung too long over his ears. He had a strange way of walking, 
with his arms swinging forcefully at his sides like a mini-major. When he spoke, which wasn't often, it was in a low-pitched voice which seemed to belong to someone far older. Lots of the other kids laughed at Matt's. Midget Max, they called him. Mad Max. Yo, Max, where'd you get your gums? Oxfam. Hey, Max, your mum cut your hair. They didn't know, as Leo did, that Max's mother had died when he was young, and he never told them. Max was no victim, however, and he was never singled out for the more vicious kind of bullying that some of the other boys were put through. There was, Leo thought, something brutal and determined about him that he didn't find funny at all. Max's father, similarly brutal, but taller with a worn, used-up face, worked as the caretaker at the bowling alley in Elephant and Castle shopping centre, and when the place was deserted, this was where the two boys would hang out, late in the evenings, sometimes mornings when they bunked off school. Max's dad left them alone, so long as they didn't break anything or make too much noise. He didn't seem to notice they were there at all, most of the time. Leo suspected he wasn't quite right in the head, but Max never said anything about it, and he wasn't going to ask. The alley had been decorated some time in the 90s, and untouched since then. Brownish-yellow paint peeled from the walls, and the leather booths were scuffed and warm. The place smelt of a mixture of vinegar and disinfectant. Leo sat down at one of the formica tables, opened his box of fried chicken, and began to pick at it until his fingers ran with grease. Max looked at it hungrily. "'You're not eating?' Leo said. Some. Earlier. As far as Leo could tell, Max lived off the food from the bowling alley kitchens, begging what he could and eating scraps that customers had left. At least Leo's mum gave him money to buy stuff. When she was in, that is. And increasingly, she wasn't. Leo wasn't exactly sure where she went. To make some cash, she told him when she left in the evenings. God knows, someone around here needs to. You're plenty big enough to look after yourself. And he was, of course. He was twelve now, but Leo still didn't much like being in the flat on his own. What you doing this weekend? What you doing this weekend? he asked Max. Max shrugged. Not much, just cotching. He picked up a red bowling ball and swung it back and forth before releasing it to roll under the seats at the far end of the room, slamming against the wall. I've got an idea, though. Oh, yeah? what that was how it started the project mr kadir ran the corner store on a side street off the Woolworth road that max and leo passed on their way home from school leo had been going there since he was a young boy everything was laid out in careful order the sweets and chocolates were placed in neat rows in front of the counter their gold and silver wrappers shining under the spotlights fixed overhead the crisps were arrayed according to make and flavour on the shelves below. The newspapers were stacked on a shelf to the left of the door, the red tops to the right, the broad sheets to the left, never a copy out of place. Mr Kadir kept the floors well swept and clean, the freezers stocked with ice creams and lollies, and the table outside was always full with fresh produce, gleaming apples, small bunches of yellow bananas, and pitted oranges piled on top of one another. Mike said he didn't hate Mr Kadir. Nah, he told Leo when he asked. It's not to do with him. If we do it, yeah, it'll be an achievement. We're supposed to set ourselves goals, right? That's what they say at school. 
Leo didn't really understand Max's logic, but he agreed it was good to have a project. It gave him something to think about, something to do. It was only so long you could watch telly for. The boys planned it carefully, drawing up lists and revising them. Max would bring a meat cleaver from the bowling alley kitchens and a knife for cutting smaller items. Leo would lift a mallet and a chisel from a neighbour's garage and get a bump key from his older brother's room. He suggested bringing some of the other kids to help, but Max was against it. No, he said. We keep it just us. We keep it neat. They agreed they would dress similarly in dark jogging bottoms and hoodies, and they would bring different coloured clothes to change into for the journey back. Leo's brother Nat had given him that tip from his previous exploits. They hadn't given him much else of worth. The occasional spliff, the odd ruffle of the hair. He was inside now, six months for assault. Leo had visited him a few times, but the Institute was a depressing place, full of the smell of bleach masking something worse and grey, hard-faced boys who looked through him like he was nothing. His brother was different too, vacant, as though part of him had been taken away. Nat had stopped asking Leo about Mum, and she'd stopped visiting. Leo and Max made several reconnaissance missions to the corner shop, noting the way in which the door was locked and bolted, and working out the location of the surveillance camera. Each time, they would make small purchases, a roll of polos, a lollipop. Whatever time of day they visited, Mr Kadir was there, sometimes with his son, responding politely to his customers no matter how rude. There was a thin man of unknowable age with shiny black eyes that darted nervously in his face. Watching him pass over packets of cigarettes and handfuls of change, Leo felt a twinge of uneasiness. But it went no deeper than that. This was not personal. On the agreed night, Leo and Max met at the bowling alley and took the bus to the shop. Their weapons stashed in their jackets, their faces shadowy in their hoods. Leo felt the adrenaline shooting through his veins, masking the fear that had been growing in him throughout the day. By the time they reached their stop, the blood was pounding so loudly in his head that he could barely hear what Max was saying. Mind the CCTV camera to your left, Max said as they walked along the street. Keep your head down. He was six months younger than Leo and three inches shorter, but tonight he was in charge. His walk had morphed into that of an older boy and his eyes glistened bright and dangerous. It was Leo, however, who dealt with the locks and the shop shutter and the door, trying to use the bump key the way he'd seen his brother do it before. It took several attempts before he could get the lock and the shutter to budge and Leo felt beads of sweat forming on the back of his neck. Surely someone would notice them. Surely someone would call the police. Once the first lock was bust, the boy slid up the metal shutter, which made a grating noise so loud that Leo was sure someone would come running. The street, however, was deserted. Next, Leo worked on the shop door itself, using the key to force the pins in the lock. A pang of fear seized him as the door opened, but, as they thought, there was no burglar alarm. Leo gave a short laugh of relief. After that, the only sounds were a siren far off and a couple shouting at one another in the next street. The boys didn't switch on the lights, but used the glow from the street lamps to guide them, moving through the shop in the order they'd agreed. Both wore gloves. Then it began, a smash shattering the darkness.
Max took the rear of the store, using the mallet to knock down the shelves of cans, boxes of cereal and sacks of rice flour, which spilled onto the floor that dirty snow on which he trampled. Leo started with the refrigerators, wrenching them forward so that they crashed into the shelves opposite them, the glass splintering and milk dripping into white puddles on the floor. Max moved on to the fruit and vegetables, bringing the machete down on the plantains and watermelons, red pulp bursting from their insides. The table was next, the thin wood splitting easily beneath the blows of the knife. Meanwhile, Leo pulled shells from the walls, sending the magazines and newspapers sliding to the ground in a heap. Sliding to the ground in a heap. They'd worked in silence up until this point, but now Max began to laugh. A strange, high laugh. He took fistfuls of chocolates and sweets from the shelves by the door and began to rip them open and throw them into the air. Leo joined him. Bounty bars, Milky Ways, Golden Twix and multicoloured jelly babies showered down on them as they yelled and jumped. Max vaulted over the counter and smashed the machete down on the cash till. It sprang open to reveal only a few coins. Mr Kadir had cleared the till. Max shrugged and pocketed what change there was. It wasn't what this was about anyway. Then Max did something that they hadn't discussed. He tipped the card section onto the ground next to the newspapers, took a bottle of barbecue lighter fuel from his pocket and poured it onto the pile. Squatting down, he held a cigarette lighter to it. There was a whoosh of fire as the collection took hold, the flames glimmering on the words, To my husband, in deepest sympathy, before they disintegrated into ash. The newspapers and magazines were next, Glossy women and tabloid headlines mingling as they burnt. By the time the boys were done, the shop was a kaleidoscope of black embers, glinting packets and broken glass which glistened in the dying flames like crystal. At the front of the shop, the freezer lay on its side, cornettos and ice lollies melting into the floor. Leo and Max stood back for a moment to admire their work. It's something, isn't it? Leo said softly. We really bust the place up. For a few seconds, Max said nothing. His expression was unreadable. Let's bounce, he said finally. Someone might have seen the fire. As they left, the printed sign swung in the door. Only two school children at a time. Travelling home at the back of the night bus, Leo and Max unwrapped and ate some of the sweets they crammed into their pockets. In the seats in front of them, a group of students passed around a bottle of wine and called out to one another across the aisle. A girl pressed up close to her boyfriend, giggling. The whole of the top deck smelt of chips and farts and stale sweat. Will your dad wonder where you are? Leo asked after a time. No, said Max. Your mum? Nah, she's probably out. The chocolate stuck to the roof of Leo's mouth, greasy and unpleasant. With the adrenaline gone, he felt suddenly tired and nauseous. For the rest of the journey, they sat in silence, Max tracing his name with his finger on the breath-fogged glass. Leo got off at his stop, nodding a goodbye to Max, and then made his way back home along the rubbish-strewn street dodging couples arm in arm and groups of youths swaggering and shouting. His road, however, was deserted. And, when he was nearly home, he saw that their flat was in darkness. No one was in. 
Officer Bicknell clicked his mouse and watched the grainy footage once again. Two men, youths perhaps, one taller than the other, ransacked the shop and destroyed all of its contents in the space of twenty minutes. Both were hooded. Neither, so far as he could tell, had any distinguishing features. Bicknell had been to the shop twice now and there was no further forward. There was no apparent motive, no fingerprints, no nothing. The usual story. He needed a new beat. He'd even started talking to his wife Sandra about moving out to the suburbs, buying a house with a proper garden, somewhere for Sam and Jake to run off all that adolescent energy. The shopkeeper, Mr Kadir, had been less than useless, of course. No, he knew no one who had a grudge against him. No, he hadn't seen anyone suspicious hanging about. No, he hadn't left money in the till. I don't understand it, he kept saying, wringing his fingers. Why? Why would someone do this? Well, why, Bicknell had wanted to ask him, didn't you insure your shop? Bloody idiot. This would bankrupt him. Broken Britain, indeed. Officer Bicknell sighed and took a sip of his tea, now lukewarm. On the screen before him, the picture had become obscured by the smoke rising from whatever it was the youths had set on fire. He could see almost nothing. He would have to tell Mr Kadir that he was very sorry, but they would not be taking any further action. The hooded suspects could be anyone. As he put down his tea, however, something caught the officer's eye. He clicked pause, and the film froze on the image of the two figures, just visible through the smoke. One stretched his arms above his head as though in triumph. The other punched his fist in the air. Something about their movement was familiar. A certain awkwardness. An undisguised excitement. Bicknell gave a twisted smile as he realised what it reminded him of. His own boys. Christ, he thought. They're just kids. Thank you very much for listening to our Boom and Bust podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope that you will download again next month.